Today's reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 through 23. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. There's a growing trend of people in our culture, in our world, who are saying goodbye to the local church. And there's a variety of reasons for that. This trend away from the local church One of the reasons is some people just walk away from the faith, stop believing, and so walk away from the church. Sometimes it's people walk away from the local church because they've been offended or hurt by the church. Maybe that's that's you. Maybe that's happened. Sometimes people walk away from the local church because they want more of God and the church isn't quite doing it for them. There's an influential uh, Christian author who in his uh, blog post, very, he admits it, uh, that he rarely attends church. And he rarely attends church because he connects with God in other ways, he says, through his work, through nature. What's interesting is when you, when you see this movement away from the local church, those that are disillusioned with the local church, a lot of times there's, a, there's almost a romanticizing of the early church, there's a thought that our church is broken, uh, and, and you can scan history and find a bunch of reasons to give up on the church. You just can. The church has missed it. The church has blown it through the centuries in various ways. But there's almost this, because of that, I'm going to walk away, and oh, if we could just get back to that early church. But that statement forgets that the early church especially the church in Corinth, 
was a dysfunctional mess. It was a messy church. And what's striking is that Paul doesn't give up on the church. He doesn't say, yes, Corinth, church at Corinth, you're an absolute mess. I'm wiping my hands, I'm done. Not wasting my pen and my letter on you, I'm walking away. He doesn't do that, right? In fact, he leans in further. He presses into the church. He doesn't give up on the church, why? Well, at her best and at her worst, and you could look through history and find times of the best and times of the worst, Jesus loves his church. When Jesus saw the broken church, he didn't walk away from it. He married her. He married her. He, Jesus saw a band of misfits. You and I fall in that category. He saw a band of misfits and had a vision for a beautiful, perfect, radiant bride. And Jesus will accomplish his vision. Now, what exactly did Jesus envision for the church? What exactly does Paul envision for the church? That's what this passage is about. A vision for a thriving, healthy, not perfect, this side of glory, never perfect, but a healthy, thriving church. So what marks a healthy, thriving church? First, dependence on God. And to understand this, we're gonna look at the relationship between Paul and Apollos. Look at verse five. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered. Paul planted the Corinthian church. And then at some point, God called him away elsewhere and Apollos stepped in and watered, meaning Apollos was the next pastor of this church in Corinth. And apparently, Paul and Apollos were very different. Very different. In fact, we learn a little bit about Apollos in Acts 18.24 when it says this. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Apollos evidently was a very eloquent preacher. He was a master of taking words and language and communicating dynamically the truth about God. Paul seems to be quite different. In fact, the first couple chapters of his letter here in 1 Corinthians seems to explain that. When he makes a couple of statements, Paul says, I didn't come with words of eloquent wisdom. I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul says, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Do you see the difference probably between Paul and Apollos? Apollos, just a, a great orator, very eloquent. Paul, not so much. Paul just kind of more down to earth, not so eloquent. And what happened is that this church and the people in the church began to compare and judge the difference between Paul and Apollos. I like Apollos' teaching. I like Paul's teaching. And suddenly, the church had factions and divisions rallied around whichever one they preferred. It's the, it's the classic first century example of a pastor who plants a church and then at some point God calls him away and the next pastor steps in. 
and inevitably comparing starts to happen. And some people like the former pastor, some like the other one better, and people leave the church. It usually leads into some sort of division. I, I say that because there is, and I've said this already a couple times, there's nothing new under the sun. We think in this day and age, we come to these brand new things of, wow, early church was so good. No, they dealt with the same thing, and here it is. Here it is. So how does Paul deal with this problem in Corinth? Look at verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, this is a verse where verb tense is incredibly important. There are three verbs in this verse six. Planted, watered, gave the growth. Now, on the surface, they're all past tense, and they are. But there's a distinction between these verbs. The first two, planted and watered, are in what's called in Greek, the original language that the New Testament was written in, the aorist tense, which means a completed event, a past event that was done and completed. So Paul planted, done, completed, past event. Apollos watered, again, in the aorist tense, completed, done, past event. But the verb gave the growth is in a different tense. It's in, what, it's in what's called the imperfect tense, which means a past event that has not been completed. It's a past event that has ongoing activity and implications. So what you see here in verse six, Paul planted one time past event done. Apollos watered one time event, past event done. But undergirding all of this is God's continued work at building this young church. That God is the one who's growing it continually from one pastor to another to different leaders, that God's the one that is growing this church. And so the logical conclusion, when you realize verse nine says that Paul and Apollos were God's fellow workers, which means they were working for God. God was the one doing the work and he assigned tasks to each of them to complete, but God was the one doing the work. The only logical conclusion is verse seven. Right? So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. I want you to imagine that, that you go away one summer for a month. And, and right before you, or you know, weeks before you are going away, you, you actually planted some small sapling tomato plants that are gonna, gonna need to be watered while you're gone. And so you get four of your friends to water your tomato plants while you're gone. One, each of them takes a week. And they all have different watering styles. One friend comes with the hose and he just turns the hose on, he just sticks it in the soil, in the pot, and just lets it flow. Another takes a, a real pretty watering can and fills up the watering can. And he, and he spreads the water over the plant, evenly over the pot, and on and on. So four weeks go by, you come back and your tomato plants are lush, they're growing. They're even pushing out little tiny green tomatoes. You're thrilled. And so imagine if you did this. You were talking to one of your friends and you said to him, hey, I love how you told me you watered my tomato plants. I mean, I love your approach. Putting the water in this nice watering can and, and, and then and then pouring it so it spreads evenly over the tomato plant and then onto the soil, just masterful. 
listen, I had four of my friends watering, but I am convinced that the way you watered my tomato plants is the reason why they're lush and green and pushing out green tomatoes. How would you respond to that? This is nonsense. It's nonsense, right? All your friends put water on the tomato plant and it's growing. Your friends didn't make the plant grow. Same thing here. Paul and Apollos had different styles, different gift mixes, probably different personalities. But undergirding all of their work was God who was making and causing this young church to grow. What, what marks a, a thriving and a healthy church is dependence on God. It's dependence on God. Now, well, what do I mean by this? Let me give you some negatives here to define what I mean. First, dependence on God means not being dependent on a pastor. It means not being dependent on a pastor. Yes, pastors are important, and they're assigned a call and a task in a church, but God is the one who makes a church grow. This church in Corinth is an example of when a congregation becomes functionally dependent on a pastor, it's an example of what happens. When that pastor leaves, factions, divisions, things pop up and reveal that maybe the dependence wasn't really on God. It was on a person or a personality or a gift mix or, or whatever it may be. So being dependent on God as a church means we're dependent on God for the growth. Yes, God gives gifts in all kinds of elders, deacons, leaders, teachers, but God's the one that grows it continually. Second, being dependent on God means not being dependent on strategies and infrastructure. Listen, those things are important. We're gonna see as it, as it gets to building, we're called to build, which means that plans and strategies, infrastructure, that's all, that's not a bad thing. But listen, no strategy. I can't say this clear enough or loud enough. No strategy has ever raised the dead. No strategy has ever raised some from the dead, someone from the dead or crossed them over from death to life. God and God alone by his Holy Spirit calls someone from death to life in Jesus Christ. And so a, th a, a thriving and a healthy church is one that is dependent, functionally dependent on God. Second, what's the second mark of a thriving and a healthy church? It's marked by careful building. And this flows out of, while it's true, God grows his church. That doesn't mean that everyone sits around and does nothing. Right, God grows his church, but... He calls his people to build and to labor. And into verse 10, how does he call us to build and labor? Into verse 10, let each one take care, carefully. All right, what does carefully mean? What does it mean to be a careful builder? Well, any building project starts with a foundation, doesn't it? Any building project starts with a foundation. You look at verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Christ, the foundation. Now, this is, this is imagery, this coming out of the Old Testament. Psalm 118, verse 22, speaking of Christ, the stone 
that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then the prophet Isaiah picks up on this imagery, this cornerstone imagery. And then Paul in Ephesians 2 continues to pick up on it. He says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What's a cornerstone? It is that first stone that gets laid in the corner of a foundation that sets the line for all the other stones. In other words, that cornerstone determines the position of the entire structure. I want you to see the progression here. Look what Paul says in verse 10. Paul, like a skilled master builder, laid the foundation and someone else is building upon it. So you've got Jesus, the cornerstone. You've got Paul and the other apostles, the prophets, who, who lay the foundation, drawing off of Jesus, the cornerstone. And then Paul says, someone else is building on it. So the foundation's laid. We don't lay any more foundation. We simply build upon it. Paul, the apostles, laid the foundation and they gave it to us in the form of the scriptures that you hold in your hand. That's the foundation. And we're called to build on it, not add foundation. Or not replace foundation or put different foundation down. We're simply called to build on it. Now, there's a great temptation to add foundation. There's a great temptation to add foundation. And I think one of the common ways or one of the common temptations of adding foundations is, is cultural pressure, right? There's cultural pressure that exists to add foundation to what Jesus Christ and the apostles have already laid down and finished. You know, the, uh, the Bible, <clears throat> or should I say one of the critiques of the Bible, and maybe you have this critique, is that the Bible's culturally regressive. And by that, I mean, it's outdated, right? It hasn't kept up with the times. Culturally, it's, it's stuck way in the, in the past. It's antiquated, it's outdated. Here's, here's the problem with that approach, is that if you, if you make that claim that the Bible is culturally regressive and outdated, you're assuming that this historical moment that you live in is the moment by which you judge all other cultures in the past and determine whether they're progressive or regressive. Let me give you an example of this. I want you to imagine that you're, um, imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior in Great Britain in AD 800. And this Anglo-Saxon warrior has two strong impulses, two strong inward feelings that he has to deal with. Number one is aggression. He likes to kill people and smash people that show him disrespect. And he lives in a culture that is a, an honor-shame culture. And it's a culture that has a warrior ethic. And so how does he respond to this, uh, this inward impulse for aggression? He says, that's me. That's who I am. I will express it. Now, imagine he has a second strong inward impulse. Okay, and that's same-sex attraction. What's he do with that? He says, that's not me. And I will, I will control it. I will try to suppress it. Now imagine you've got a young, man, a young man today in the city of Jacksonville who has those same two impulses. How does he respond to the aggression? He may say, man, 
that is not me. That is not me. I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to go to an anger management program, right, to, to suppress that impulse. But then what might he do with the second one? The second one, the sexual desire, the same-sex attraction. He may say, you know what, that's me. And I'm going to express that. Now, where in those two scenarios, right, separated by a huge period of time, in those two scenarios, where is the Anglo-Saxon warrior and the, and the Jacksonville young man getting their grids? They're getting it from their culture. They're getting it from their communities. They're getting it from what is, um, what is heroic. In other words, they're, they're, they've got feelings and they, they decide to jettison some or embrace the others based on their cultural moment. Now, you may say, but the, the Anglo-Saxons, that's, that's just primitive. Like, that's primitive. Well, guess what? Years from now, there will be a culture that looks back on our dominant culture of views and says, wow, that was really primitive. Or that was wrong, or that was weak. Wouldn't it be a, just a tragedy to reject the scriptures, to, to reject the Bible over a cultural moment that shifts? See, what Paul is saying here is that the foundation has been laid Right? And that we build on the foundation that's laid, not on top of shifting cultural beliefs. Right? The foundation is secure, and it's in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says at the end of verse 10, take care how you build. In other words, how you build matters. And then he introduces the imagery of building materials, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Right? And he says the, the, that some of those, half of those, will survive the fire, right? The fire here is the um, imagery of Jesus' return, the day in, in verse 13, when Jesus returns in judgment. Paul's saying that, that the, the gold, silver, and precious stones will survive the fire, that the wood, hay, and, and straw will be burned up. He says in verse 14, if the work survives, you'll be rewarded. Verse 15, if the work is burned up, you'll suffer loss. Now, what does that mean? So how we build matters. But then he says in verse 15, if you build with those poor materials that get burned up when Jesus returns, you'll suffer loss. What's that mean? Well, clearly, it doesn't mean that bad workmanship results in loss of salvation or loss of eternal life in heaven. Right? He makes that clear. You'll be saved. So what's the loss? I think the loss is this. A realization when Jesus returns, that you've contributed little or nothing permanent to the kingdom. That's the loss. Or the agonizing trial of seeing your life's work burned up, destroyed. Let me say it this way. The biggest tragedy in life isn't losing, but winning at something that doesn't matter. Say that again. The biggest tragedy in life isn't losing, but winning at something that really doesn't matter. And so it begs the question, are you, are you working in building things that have eternal significance? A thriving, healthy church is dependent on God. A thriving, healthy church builds on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Doesn't add to the foundation, but builds on it. And then third, a thriving, healthy church 
is marked by humble learning. Humble learning. Paul lays out in verses 16 to 20 the danger of, of prideful self-deception, right? of prideful self-deception. You know, this is the, the church of Corinth, as we've seen so far, that's been divided by prideful alliances, right? aligning themselves with certain leaders. It's been destroyed by power plays. All of this, people trying to uh, align or have a power play to earn a reputation, to enhance a reputation. This has been dividing the Corinthian church. And Paul's laying out here the danger of that prideful self-deception. And what does he say in verses 16 and 17? The Corinthians are looking at this saying, ah, it's just not a big deal. Okay, so we had a power play. We're doing not a big deal. And Paul's saying in verses 16 and 17, no, this is a huge deal. This is a huge deal. Look at it. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. The you in these verses is plural. So God's saying you, Corinthian congregation, you, Corinthian church, are God's temple. You're the place of God's dwelling. Now, before I, this is verses that have lots of judgment in it. Let me just make a side note encouragement here. You, you've seen over the past three weeks, the mess of this Corinthian church, their problems, their sin, their shortcomings. And yet Paul still calls them God's temple. That's encouraging. Why? Because chapter one, we saw they had been past tense sanctified, set apart. God set them apart. They were becoming who they already were. They had a lot of work to do, but they were becoming who they already were. They're God's temple. But what Paul, the point he's making here is when you engage in these power plays and this, this divisive following stuff and you're aligning with certain leaders, you think you're just not loving a brother or sister well. You think that you're just, maybe you're just mistreating someone, but Paul takes it a step further. He says, no, no, no. When you... Um, when you damage someone's reputation, when you sin against someone, it's not just that you're mistreating them and not loving them, you're misusing what is sacred. His whole point is that person is indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And so you're misusing what is meant to be used for sacred purposes. You're offending the Holy Spirit. You're pitting yourself against the Holy Spirit. And this danger is an ever-present reality when one is operating according to worldly wisdom. And that's what Paul picks up, right, in verses 18 and 19. He describes worldly wisdom. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool. Let him become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Can I just paraphrase that? Here's what it means. Worldly wisdom is manipulating and tricking people into thinking that you know it all and that you have no chinks in your armor so that your reputation is enhanced. That, that's what he's describing here. Your craftiness, it's manipulation, it's, trick, it's, it, it's just tricking people. It's deceiving people. That's the self-deception here. It's deceiving people into thinking, you know it all, you have no chinks in your armor, and therefore your reputation should be elevated. That's what it is. And Paul's encouragement is, 
Just the opposite. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. You know what that means? It means this. Admit how little you know that you may begin to learn. That's what he means there. Admit how little you know so that you may begin to learn. That's the wisdom of God. And then Paul says, now, with that kind of wisdom, look at all the resources you have. Look at all the resources you have. Verse 21, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. You see what he's saying there? Instead of aligning with Apollos, aligning with Paul, aligning with Cephas, hey, his discipleship strategy is better than yours. His teaching is better than yours. We're going to align. Learn from all of them. Yeah, they're different. They all have something to offer. And when you admit how little you know and how much you have to learn and you belong to Christ and you're secure in Christ and you're not having to prove yourself, then you can say, wow, look at all the resources I have in God's church. Look at all the people. Look at all the resources. And that's what he's telling these Corinthians. Would you learn from Apollos? Would you learn from Paul? Would you learn from Cephas? And quit playing competition and pridefully competing. Can you imagine? Let me just paint these two pictures. Can you imagine a church full of people deceiving everyone into thinking that they know it all and that they have no chinks in their armor? Can you imagine a church like that? Just for a second. Where everyone is deceiving and tricking and manipulating everyone else into thinking that you know it all and you don't have any real problems or needs. That would be a miserable church to be a part of. Absolutely miserable. You talk about division. You talk about performance and pretending where everyone's just got an angle, right? Everyone's got an angle. Everybody's kind of playing out the land. That's a miserable church. That's a church that's divided. That's a church that's unhealthy. Now, imagine the opposite. Imagine a church full of people who admit how little they know and how much they have to learn. Wow. A church full of humble people who are eager to learn, who are eager to learn from each other. What a healthy church that would be. Let me just give two very pointed points of application here. Moms, you don't have to know it all. You don't have to know it all. There are moms that do certain things better than you. And there are certain things you do that are better than other moms. And when you're in a church, wow, look at the resources you have that when you realize you belong to Christ, you're secure in Christ, your reputation is secure in Christ, you can go to another mom and say, hey, I see how you do that really well. Can you tell me what you do? Can I learn from you? And then somebody comes to you and says, hey, I've watched how you do that. Man, that's amazing. Can you, can you teach me and show me how to do that? Can you imagine a church full of moms that don't have to know it all and can just lean on each other in humility? That's, that's application point number one. Number two, men and women in the working world. You don't have to know it all. You don't have to know it all. Within people in this congregation that are in your same area of vocation, there is somebody else, I guarantee it, that's doing better at a certain point than you are or a certain thing that you are. And you can go to that person and say, hey, I've watched you do that. You seem to be really knowledgeable in that area. Can I learn from you? 
or at work, in your office place, and this is swimming upstream, I realize it, but that's how the kingdom of God works. In your team, there's somebody on your team that does something better than you, has a different gift mix, whatever it may be, secure in Christ, not having to prove yourself and justify yourself and make everybody think how good you are. Secure in Christ, you can say, hey, so-and-so, I've watched you do that. Can I learn from you? Can you teach me how to do that? Boy, the, the, the freedom and the beauty of humility that Christ brings to make his people humble learners. At her best and at her worst, Jesus loves his church. He laid down his life for his church. He promised to never leave or forsake his church. Promised in Philippians to finish the work he started. Jesus Christ loves his church, which means he loves you. And he has a vision for you. See, Jesus looked at the broken church and said, guess what? I'm not walking away. I'm going to marry her. Jesus looked at the band of misfits that we are and said, I've got an incredible vision for that person's life and that church's life. To be a beautiful, spotless, radiant bride. Jesus says, I have a vision for them being dependent on God, not on a strategy, a structure, a pastor, a teacher, a leader, an elder, a deacon. I have a vision for them being utterly dependent on me, Jesus Christ. And Jesus looks at our, uh, us, our misfitness, and he says, I've got a vision. I've got a vision for this people, building on the foundation of Christ alone not on a, a moment of cultural belief, building on the foundation of Christ alone that's fixed and finished. And boy, I've got a vision for my people, secure in me, belonging to me, to be humble learners that realize the resources that I have put in their lives for them to grow. That is a healthy church, amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess our pride. We confess our pride to want to be reputable and to want to know it all and to want to make others think well of us. And oh, Father, we just, we absolutely lose the gospel when we live according to our flesh and according to the wisdom of the world in that way. Father, would you penetrate our hearts with the truth that Jesus Christ has married his church, that he has a vision for us, a vision for beauty and perfection and radiance. And oh, Father, would we in humility lean into that? and know that we belong to Jesus and we have nothing to prove. Because Jesus, we have your righteousness. And I pray that would make us a people in a church that is utterly dependent on you and nothing else, that's committed to building on the foundation of you alone, Jesus, not on shifting cultural waves and seasons. And oh, Father, would you make us a people 
that are humble learners, that secure in you, Jesus, that we would see all the resources you have put before us to grow us in conformity to the image of your son. Father, would our hearts now respond in worship of such a great God and such great promises that we get to participate in. And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.